and welcome to Just Plain Sense, the podcast about equality and diversity topics in Britain today. I'm Christine Burns, and for this episode, I've come to the headquarters of the Lesbian and Gay Foundation in the heart of Manchester's Gay Village, where I'm joined by Paul Martin, LGS Chief Executive. Paul, your premises here are very impressive, but what is the Lesbian and Gay Foundation? Well, good afternoon, Christine, and thanks very much for coming to see us. And thank you very much for acknowledging that the premises um, are, are quite exceptional. And I think that the staff and volunteers at the Lesbian and Gay Foundation work very, very hard to ensure um, that we provide a very welcoming and safe environment for lesbian, gay, and bisexual people. Um, the Lesbian and Gay Foundation is um, a, a fairly unique organisation in the UK, in as much as we do a huge amount of, of health, community, um, and, uh, and, and lobbying work. Um, for and on behalf of the lesbian, gay and bisexual communities of the Northwest, And indeed, um, I feel that we actually have uh, a fairly national significance, certainly a national profile, and I think that a lot of the work we do up here um, is, is very nationally significant. Um, I think that, 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 it, that it's a question that I always kind of struggle to, to answer um, very succinctly because I think the Lesbian and Gay Foundation provides a huge amount of, of different services. I think we, you know, we, we, we provide services from helplines and counselling services and support groups right the way to through to information provision we have a, a monthly magazine out northwest we have a very comprehensive website um, you know attracting huge numbers um, of, of people and users um, and, and and that's through to um, uh, the other work we kind of do is, is a lot of like you know policy work um, lobbying work campaigning work um, working a lot with the public sector in particular um, health and local authorities across the region and um, to some extent uh, with uh, national um, bodies particularly departments of government trying to put um, lesbian, gay, and bisexual people's um, needs and issues on the agenda of decision makers um, and trying to move forward um, the equality uh, and liberation agenda for lesbian, gay, and bisexual people, particularly in the Northwest, but indeed everywhere across the UK. Now, Manchester's lesbian and gay scene is famous nowadays, yet it's, it's not always been that way. How did the community we see today emerge, and, and why here in particular? Well, I think it's very, very interesting. I mean, there is a, there's, a, there's a fantastic project um, in uh, Manchester called Out in the Past, which uh, includes um, heritage walks around the, the queer hotspots of, of Manchester um, during the summer months. Um, and uh, there's, there's, a, there's been a huge fascination in terms of um, the oral histories um, and, and, and the, the her histories of, 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 of very important lesbian, gay, bisexual and trans people um, in Manchester and surrounding areas for, for many years. So there's a lot of interest um, in our history uh, in Manchester. Manchester. In terms of, of, of how this came about, I mean, there has been a, a fairly visible, to some extent or other, a fairly visible community um, in Manchester for many, many decades, and th there's been a very, very supportive local authority in Manchester City Council, particularly from the early 80s kind of onwards. There's been a, a huge number of moves forward in terms of the liberation movement um, for lesbians and gay men, bisexual and trans people um, in, in Manchester. Of course, um, Manchester is the birth um, of uh, saw the birth of Chi, the, the, the campaign for homosexual equality, um, the uh, Northwest um, Lesbian and Gay Liberation Group. You know, the, the, uh, I can't remember the exact terms, but but never going underground. There was a, there was an incredibly influential uh, community magazine called Seen Out when I first moved to Manchester. There's been a lot of uh, uh, thriving, um, and of, of course, Press for Change was based in Manchester and grew out of, of Manchester as well. So I think there's been there's been a fair amount of community activity. Um, 
over the, over the years, and there's been a lot of people that have have sort of like you know cut their teeth in Manchester um, on, on, on in kind of community politics um, and have moved on to to other positions of uh, you know nationally and internationally in terms of the the, the 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 union movement. I mean, Manchester's had a very very strong kind of you know liberation sort of like you know sense about itself. So there's been a huge amount of, of activity that, that has emerged, and of course we've seen huge development of of the most visible aspect of that, which is that the, the Manchester has been in gay village, um, and uh, we, we we saw with um, when we've got a number of bars that have been there for many many decades, the Rembrandt, the New Union, they've been there for 40, 50 years um, as venues that have been welcoming to you know people that have been different over over, over the years, um, and and certainly we saw with Manto one of the very first bars um, in the UK back in about 1990 I think um, uh, with with um, a, a lack of lots and lots of bars in those days you know you had to kind of like knock three times and ask for Doris sort of thing in terms of coming in whereas Manto actually had big plate glass windows everybody was on view and that was very very different it was very very innovative it was very much about us coming out of, of, of sort of like the shadows and actually being there on, on show and I suppose I've been doing this, this job and been involved in this work for long enough to know that actually what Manto actually stands for which is Manchester today that was the original um, sort of uh, uh, meaning of Manto but of course many many people have forgotten that over the years. Now, you've estimated there are over 600,000 LGB folk in northwest England. I suppose that probably means about five or six million in the UK as well. How do you actually arrive at a figure like that? Well, I think it's, 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 the great, uh, it's the great imponderable. I mean, how many lesbian, gay, bisexual and trans people are there um, in, in, in the country or indeed kind of like beyond that? I mean, I don't think we have any reliable figures. I mean, the, the, the reason that, that we have identified that particular number um, is, is based upon what um, the Treasury determined several years ago when they were estimating the impact of civil partnerships for lesbians and gay men. So they said that they believe that 6% of the population was lesbian or gay um, and they use that figure as the basis um, for the calculation um, of, of the impact the cost um, in, in, in lost tax revenue. But your, your figure's closer to about 9 or 10%. Yeah, and no, I was going to come to that really because, because of course that 6% only um, includes lesbians and gay men it doesn't include bisexual men and women it doesn't include transgender people. Now you and I have had uh, conversations or at least been um, you know, listened politely to each other's speeches at different conferences that we've seen each other on, where you've kind of estimated that the trans population of this country could be as low as 5,000 and as much as 30, 40, 50 or 60,000, depending on which particular definition that you take. And I think that, that, it, that, that, that the same is true for, 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 for the figure. The reason we came to the figure of just over 600,000 was because we believed that, that, that at least 3% of the population had to be uh, a bisexual man or woman. In term, if, you, if you accept that 6% um, are lesbians and gay men, we believe at least another 3% are, are bisexual men and women um, and, and including trans people within that rather than sort of like counting all the numbers it's, you know, if you take 9% of the population generally then that comes out uh, just over 600,000 working adults or adults of working age in the North West who, who have um, a, a sexual orientation which isn't heterosexual um, or isn't exclusively heterosexual and I think, that, um, I think that, that that's one of the reasons why decision makers have started to sit up a little bit 
heads and backs are straightened a little bit when you and I and other colleagues uh, across the sectors are, are kind of like starting to put some of those numbers across because all of a sudden the LGBT community becomes comparable with the BME community, with sort of, you know, faith communities and suddenly, you know, nearly 10% of the population who potentially have a sexual orientation that isn't um, sort of heterosexual or, or, or a gender which isn't sort of, you know, the, the, the one that they were born with is actually suddenly um, the... the, the um, decision makers have really taken notice of that and, and sort of like oh my goodness you know that's such a sizable kind of like community it's a, you know it's a community that we need to take sort of like you know pay real attention to in, in a way I think you've just answered my next question because I was, I was going to say do you think people at large have an accurate picture of what lesbian and gay folk are no, but I mean, do you and I know what, what queer folk, you know, what, 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 what we are? I mean, are, are, you know, you and I are, are, are like chalk and cheese, and yet I suspect that we have far more in common with each other than, than most of the other kind of, like, you know, population. Um, I, I mean, I was talking to, you know, a gay guy today who is talking about turning his, um, his loft into a boy's games room, and what he means by that is he wants to have a, 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 a you know, turn his loft into a, a, a space where he can put a pool table and a bar in the corner and him and his partner and friends can kind of come home on a Friday after work and stuff and play a couple of games of pool, drink a couple of beer and, and, and watch football on, on, on the widescreen TV. Now, that isn't, that isn't behaviour that a lot of people would associate with gay men and yet these two, you know, this, this, this gay men's couple have been together over 11 years, very, very happy together and would absolutely identify as gay. So what is a typical lesbian, gay, bisexual or trans person? I don't really, really know. I think the most important thing is that we have been so misrepresented in society and we've been so misrepresented in the world um, and I think that, that there are you know m literally quite millions of people's life stories that that organizations like the Lesbian and Gay Foundation want to start talking about want to start telling want to start putting in the mainstream because you know however special we may have had to feel because we've been so criticized and so discriminated against I think a lot of uh, the reality for many many lesbian gay bisexual and trans people is that their lives are quite quite ordinary actually that they kind of you know they go to work they have you know all the strains of, of having a mortgage and paying the bills that they're just as concerned about sort of like you know fluctuations in the house market and 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 the stock exchange as anybody else um, and maybe this is just because you know I'm 40 this year but certainly the conversations that I tend to have with my friends is much much more about sort of like you know the fluctuations in the housing market and you know what impact that's going you know the stock market's going to have in terms of our pensions longer term than, than, than talking about, you know, other things that people think maybe imagine that we as queers might be talking about on a Friday or Saturday night. Do you think that now LGB folk have, have got uh, legal protections and the right to civil partnerships and that everything's rosy or are there still big issues to overcome? No, I mean, I think that it's really, <coughs> excuse me, I think it's really, really important to, to recognise what I've just said is that, you know, many of us may have, may have quite ordinary lives. That doesn't mean that I think that, that the battles have been won. I mean, certainly I've been, I've been talking to a lot of people that have been working in the sector for as long as I have and in some cases longer. And they think, you know, all the fights have, have been had, you know, all the battles have been won and now we need to kind of move on. And I think it's just the beginning of the end rather than, the, well, it's the end of the beginning really in terms of we, we now have a number of 
rights. We still don't have total legal protection um, uh, under the law. I mean, I think that, that, that trans men and women are going to do slightly better than those being homosexual people in terms of the, the, the changes that are being proposed in the short to, to medium term in terms of, you know, more protections, particularly in terms of, of incitement to hatred and, and discrimination. Um, but I think there's still huge numbers of, of inequalities, and we only have to look that over 30 years ago, women won the right to actually earn e the same wage as, as, as a man um, in the same job. And 30 years on, you know, we're still having projections of 70 or 80 years for that to naturally occur um, as the population kind of changes. So it's far from over, and I certainly don't think that, that it's rosy. What I think is, is it's the most positive time in, in queer history at this moment in this country in the fact that we're not having to fight quite as hard to get a seat at the table, is that we are actually being invited to join the table, or in some cases we're firmly in the seat at the table, and we're starting to engage with policymakers and decision makers um, on, on, on more equal terms in a, in a more kind of equal way. But there's something I want to I pick up a little bit later on in, in this interview about what we may be as, as communities of people should be doing to kind of like move that, that forward. But certainly I don't think that the position is rosy. I think it's better than it has been for many times. But, you know, we only have to look at the case studies and uh, I say case studies, that sounds very formal. We only have to look at the life experiences of people that come and use the LGF as as, as service users to realise that lesbian, gay, bisexual and trans people are being discriminated against on a daily basis, that people are being beaten in their homes, that people are being rejected by their families, that people are losing their jobs, that people are being attacked in the street and denigrated in the street, to see that it's far from a rosy picture across the country. Let's just, let's just pick that up from the point of view of, of, of gay and lesbian people themselves first. And what, what do you think that they can do? Well, I mean, I think I, I, I think that um, one of the things that we need to determine um, is, is 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 who we are, you know, as a coalition. Um, and and you and I, in this kind of like this this very brief discussion, we've talked about lesbian, gay, bisexual, and trans people. We talked about queer people. Talked about different people. We've talked about lesbian, gay, and bisexual, and lesbian and gay. Now, I think that one of the things that we spend an inordinate amount of time on is who and what we are, and 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 who and you know who our alliances are. And I think. We we need to kind of like very, very quickly kind of get over that. The Lesbian and Gay Foundation very, very clearly is an organisation focused around sexual orientation. We provide services to lesbian, gay and bisexual people. We are focused almost exclusively around sexual orientation and we have a significant number of trans people who are part of, of that kind of like extended community because, you know, trans men and women, some of them identify as lesbians, some of them identify as gay and some of them identify as bisexual. And it's not, you know, the Lesbian and Gay Foundation has been criticised in the past of ignoring trans people. We don't ignore trans people. We focus our work around lesbian, gay and bisexual people because that's where our expertise is, that's where our experience is, that's where you know, the, 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 the focus of our work is. We want to encourage and support trans organisations that are working with trans men and women to sort of like, you know, provide similar types of services if it's appropriate for trans men and women that Lesbian and Gay Foundation is providing to lesbian, gay and bisexual people. But beyond that, and we only had to see some of the arguments and debates that took place at the LGBT Health Summit last year in Manchester that you and I were both involved in, and um, there's a fantastic um, uh, e-group uh, LGBT Health that's operating as a Yahoo group at the moment to see some of the, the real criticisms that some individuals will level against other people because they, you know, some 
some people will try to do something and they might get it a bit wrong. They might not be as inclusive, they might not have thought it through. Um, but, but I think that one of the things that's happening a lot at the moment is that somebody kind of has an idea. They put something forward to do something, to make some change, to make it better for, you know, a particular group of people. And rather than people kind of supporting each other, rather than people being constructive about that and saying, look, it's fantastic what it is you're trying to achieve, you know, next time you do something, you might want to consider this or you might want to consider that or had you realised you'd excluded, um, you know, this group or that group or this issue. But instead what seems to be happening is that we seem to be, you know, getting more and more critical of each other and less and less tolerant of each other. And it really, really concerns me. Now, obviously, it concerns me as the chief executive of the Lesbian and Gay Foundation because the Lesbian and Gay Foundation has been, you know, a real success on so many different levels in terms of the size and scale and reach and scope and impact of the work that we do. You know, we are one of the largest, if not the largest, lesbian, gay and bisexual service provider in the country. And certainly we've actually achieved that without any of the, of the support mechanisms that might be in place within London, particularly political support mechanisms. And we've actually, you know, we've actually charted and created uh, a unique niche market and Position for ourselves uh, in the Northwest, and I'm exceptionally proud of the work that we do. And I'm also kind of conscious that there are many, many members of our community that will be very critical of that, that will criticise us for that success. There are some members of our community that think that the Lesbian and Gay Foundation is taking money away from them, so that every contract that we might win, every grant that we might get, rather than go, fantastic, that's great, there's more services on offer, there's more people that we can support, it's a bit like, well, that's not fair, we've not got it. And I'm really, really concerned that we're starting to foster a bit of a culture, and I see this happening all around the country, talking to colleagues that are running similar type organisations to the LGF in other parts of the country. I, it's the same story again and again and again that what's happening is that we're starting to foster a culture of real criticism that isn't constructive that's often very very personal that's often incredibly unfair and what worries me more than anything is that I've seen in the last year a number, a small number at the moment but a, but, a, but a number of people nonetheless that have kind of put themselves up and said look I've got an idea or I want to do this and have been criticised by people that have actually taken it very personally, have felt very wounded by it and have actually withdrawn from the field and actually you know we lose that expertise and we lose that experience and we lose that commitment, we lose that passion and I'm really really concerned that it's very very easy to sit you know on a computer and dash off an email or be in a, in, a, in a room and sort of like, you know, put your hand up and be critical about whoever's kind of talking and you've experienced this, I've experienced this, part of, sometimes that's kind of okay because it's what we're paid to do, sometimes it's really not okay Christine, as you and I well know and we've discussed in the past, that, that what concerns me is that at the very, very time we are in a position to really, really not clean up, but certainly move forward in ways that we could only have dreamt of five years ago, that we are being invited in. And, 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 and I, I'm, I'm not suggesting that the public sector has to invite us in, but it makes it so much easier when they do invite us in and do invite us to the table because, you know, you're not having to fight 
you know, tooth and, and nail for every kind of moment and every bit of airtime. Um, and you are, we are actively being consulted at the moment. There's plenty of opportunity to go round. You know, I want to encourage as many service providers as that we possibly can sustain as a community. Um, and, and so that we've got choice at the point of delivery, like, you know, the BME community, like the disability community, like the faith community. There's more than enough opportunity for all. And rather than sort of like, you know, focus on small, narrow amounts of money that might be available and, and, and fight each other, you know, for that money, you know, it's far better for us to kind of unify and, and lobby for a greater slice of the pie. But I'm very, very concerned that as a community, we, we are... We, we, it just feels at the moment that we're being more critical. It feels at the moment that we're losing some potentially very valuable members of, of this kind of coalition that I mentioned. Do you think that's something that all communities tend to go through when they, when they emerge from, a, from you know, having fought the rest of the world for a long time and then the world stops beating them up and they feel that they need to keep on fighting some way? Yeah, no, I think we do. I mean, I think that, you know, I mean, I, I, if, if, if I reflect on it, I think it happened a little bit in terms of, of, of sort of like, you know, the HIV movement in this country, you know, that initially we were confronted, you know, by something that was just so horrific, you, you couldn't even imagine what it was, you know, kind of going on, and we, we kind of banded together and stuff. And then as sort of, you know, money started to become available, as organisations started to establish, as people started to be employed, employing people is the key thing here. That, you know, there is something quite that, that, that there's, there's something that, that our community generally, you know, in specific quarters, people can get quite resentful when some people are sitting at the table and they're paid to be there and other people there are in a voluntary capacity. And I don't know how you manage that. But, yeah, I mean, I think... I mean, I'm, 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 I'm only somewhat encouraged by colleagues f that I talk to in the disability sector, in the BME sector um, in particular, who kind of go, yeah, it's the same experience for us, that, you know, what happens is that people will work together, found an organisation, work together, fall out, separate, create new organisations that then kind of, like, compete. And, and, and you know, that is replicated in, in, in a lot of groups, particularly groups that are marginalised, that have been discriminated against. And it almost kind of sometimes feels like, you know, the, the, the sectors like our own, you know, you can... You know, you, you can be filled with kind of, you know, lots of bad divorce settlements that have gone really wrong, if you know what I mean. And, you know, people don't talk. And, you know, the, the, the cult of personality is enormous. And, I mean, I think it's partly down to our political sort of, like, system in this country and, and, and the process of, of democracy that we have in terms of things being put up and, and being criticised and, 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 and critiqued in those kind of ways. But I don't think that we're at that stage to have, you know, we don't have that level of power, we don't have that level of influence at this point. And so I think that, you know, we must absolutely find a way of working together, you know, more collectively, more cooperatively, more respectfully, certainly, because... If we don't, then, then, you know, what happens is organisations become quite defensive. And so rather than sharing information, I mean, it's it seems absolutely fine if it's a tiny organisation or a small organisation or completely voluntary, volunteer run, people, you know, feel really, really okay to kind of share information. They're quite collaborative and quite cooperative. And then you know, you develop a little bit and you might get a couple of paid workers and you get a management board and then suddenly you've got to have a mission statement and you've got to have aims and objectives and you've got to have operating procedures and suddenly you spend a lot of time on making sure you've got insurances and policies and procedures and all those things that are absolutely spot on. But, you know,
know, me as the chief executive of the Lesbian and Gay Foundation, I f- spend far more time ensuring that the LGF is fit for purpose in terms of, you know, ensuring that it's got the appropriate governance arrangements in place, it's got the appropriate operating procedures and, and stuff in place, than I do in, t- you know, sitting down debating, you know, LGBT politics or LGBT, you know, policy or, 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 or strategy. You know, my, 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 my diary is absolutely filled of, of, of lots of, of really, you know, quite dull things in some cases. And sorry about that. I mean, you know, but, 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 but you know, very practical things in terms of running an organisation. And I think that people forget that. People forget that, that organisations like the LGF do have to have a certain amount of, of income because, you know, we as an organisation are open to the public and that means that we need to find money to have every electrical socket in this building checked once a year, you know, and that costs over two grand. Well, no one thinks about that, you know, when, when, when we might kind of like, you know, win a contract or get some money and stuff. People, f- people just look at an organisation like the LGF and think, oh well, they've been successful and rather than be sometimes proud or sometimes kind of appreciative or or kind of like, you know, say well done people can get very, very critical and, you know, I see that happening all over the country and and I really am concerned that that it's putting some people off sort of, you know, joining us and kind of getting involved as a sector um, in terms of the the next steps of, of, of the struggle for liberation that we need to engage in so on those last steps and getting out your crystal ball, where do you see the lesbian and gay people um, in, say, five or ten years? Um, to a certain extent, I think it depends on us. I mean, I think I've said that, but um, I think, I think we, can, we can choose to be where we want to be. I think that there are... I think that we have to determine the coalition that we're in. I think I've mentioned that, and I think the sooner we can do that, the better. I think that, you know, we are a pretty passionate extended family. I think that we all have, you know, lots and lots of ideas and lots and lots of thoughts and, you know, lots of the debates that take place can be very passionate and very heated. And we just need to find a way, I think, that that doesn't become personal, that we don't start to personalise things and that if people have different views to, to, to us, that that doesn't make them our enemy. And I think that we need to kind of resolve that and we need to resolve that very quickly. In terms of anything else, I mean, I, I, I think, you know, I, I, think, I think I really quite genuinely believe the sky is the limit. You know, there's obviously going to be a limit in terms of the amount of resources that we can leave her in. I'm very, very concerned that, you know, the LGBT sector is tiny nationally in comparison to, to some of the other equality sectors. You know, there are approximately 68 groups that we can identify that are registered charities working in LGB or T or all of them or some of them um, with a combined annual turnover of less than £10 million. Well, you compare that to approximately, I think it's about 22,000 disability groups and, you know, 40-odd thousand age groups and so on and so forth, is that, you know, we are tiny, tiny player in comparison to the other equality strands. I know that's only one kind of, uh, uh, you know, indicator, but I think that we do need to build our capacity. I think we do need to encourage the development of as many different service providers as we possibly can, providing a range of different services that as long as they're evidence-based and needs-based, then, you know, should should kind of like, you know, work together or work independently covering geographical areas. 
I think that it's, it's interesting the, the re-emergence of the LGBT consortium and, and, and I hope that that continues and I think that there is a need for us collectively to have um, a collective national voice and a collective national um, identity. It's much easier for policymakers to, to engage with one organisation or one voice than it is for them to respond to 20, 30, 40, 50 kind of different and sometimes competing um, arguments. So that means that we've got to, you know, we've got to have some pretty heated discussions behind closed doors and actually agree, um, you know, what, what collectively we want to achieve. And I don't know how that's going to be possible. I think that's very challenging. I think there does need to be a bit of a separation between what individuals might personally want and what individuals might understand collectively is kind of possible. I'm hearing a lot of the debate about I don't want this or I feel excluded or I don't agree with this. And I think that's kind of fine for an individual to have those kind of views, but I think that we have to have a level of pragmatism to recognise um, that, that, that we can't possibly meet every individual person's needs all the time. It's just not... It's just not possible. So we have to find a way of, of kind of keeping everybody on board. But you only have to see that last week there was a piece in The Guardian that said, you know, the first um, older person's retirement home um, has been established in Berlin, just on the outskirts of Berlin, um, and the organisation doing that is sort of like saying if it works, they want to have a whole series of them across Germany. You only have to see that, you know, um, you know lesbian and gay men are much more likely to kind of like be parents or be out and proud parents never before you know the rights you know I mean who, who I, I wouldn't have predicted five years ago that I would have the right to marry my partner um, and, uh, and and five years on I absolutely do have that so I think there's a huge amount of possibility I think that the only limit to what we achieve is the limits that we put on ourselves um, I think absolutely we need to find ways of, of working more collaboratively and collectively and respectfully together and we mustn't stand in the way of, of individuals or organizations that you know kind of you know raise the bar and, and 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 move things forward themselves and you know sometimes we need to stand back and go that's a great idea i wish i'd had it but well done i'm glad you did you know congratulations okay so to wrap up and because you've mentioned individuals a lot there have you any words of encouragement for the only gay in the village <laughs> I don't think there's any only gay in the village. I mean, that's not my experience. That's really not my experience, that if you're feeling that you're the only gay in the village, you can bet your bottom dollar that you're not. <laughs>